Why don't you turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Today is Palm Sunday. We've all celebrated probably Palm Sunday many times as youth. And uh, when I was a kid, we had the palm branches and we would tie them together and make different things. We're supposed to make a cross, but I think I made animals. Uh, And I'm sure you all remember Palm Sunday growing up as a kid. It was a big day. We'd wave the palm branches in the congregation. It was a lot of fun. And today we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. And this is basically the coronation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his inauguration. This is his uh, coming out to the people as the Lord. We all know that he was born in a manger, a humble birth, as he was uh, with his mother and father. And no one suspected this little baby in a manger to be our mighty Lord. But here we are 30 years later as he enters the city of Jerusalem. And this is his big day, the big day where he comes into the city of Jerusalem. But before we get into this text, I'd like to talk a little bit about other inaugurations and coronations uh, that we might be familiar with to compare. Uh, One such inauguration would be that of Queen Elizabeth. We all know Queen Elizabeth, right? Uh, She was, here's how her coronation went. She was driven from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey in a Golden State coach pulled by eight gray golden horses. Fabulous, right? Her coronation bouquet was made up of white flowers, including orchids and lilies from England, Stephanatus from Scotland, orchids from Wales, and carnations from Ireland. Her dress was white satin embroidered in gold with emblems made up of the United Kingdom. All the houseworkers gathered outside of Buckingham Palace to see her leave for her three-hour coronation. She wore a crown with 1,333 diamonds, And 169 pearls. She wore beautiful gloves. She carried a scepter. She had a coronation ring and a long train robe. (laughs) The procession was made up of 250 people, including church leaders, prime ministers, military and civilian leaders. It was a six-part coronation, including the recognition, the oath, the anointing, the investiture, the enthronement, and the homage. Her anointing oil was made up of things like oranges, roses, and cinnamon, and musk, etc. There was 8,251 guests. 27 million people in the UK watched on TV, and 11 million listened on the radio. Keep that in mind as we learn about the entry of Jesus Christ. To Jerusalem. Another person in history that we all know, Pope Francis, the current Pope. At 9 a.m., he arrived at St. Peter's Square and entered into St. Peter's Basilica, where there was a prayer at St. Peter's tomb. Here, the deacons collected two symbols of the papacy. 
the fisherman's ring and the pallium. The fisherman's ring had a picture of Peter, the apostle, as a fisherman, and the name of the current pope engraved in it. The pallium was an investiture, a somewhat like a cover for the robe. There was a procession that went through the basilica and into the square as they chant, Christ is King. The presentation of white smoke as the name of the new pope is announced and the pope receives the pallium. A prayer is followed by his reception of the fisherman's ring. Six cardinals, two cardinals per order, take the pledge of obedience to the pope. At 10 a.m., the inauguration mass, there's a gospel reading in Greek. 500 priests hand out communion, and the Pope gives a homily in Italian. At 11.30, they sing the conclusion song. The Pope removes his vestment at the altar of the Pieta, and then he proceeds to the main altar where he receives dignitaries and heads of state. At the end, what do we know? Of today of the Pope, he rides a white vehicle surrounded by a large security detail, and he literally has the red carpet rolled out for him. Those are two examples of coronation ceremonies that we all probably know about. This is a different type of inauguration or coronation ceremony. Very different from what we're used to in our society today. Let's start with John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 45. And before we start there, let's pray. Father, I pray that all the words that I speak here from the pulpit today will be your words and not my own. And I pray that the people may be blessed. Amen. John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. This is leading up to the entry into Jerusalem. Now, just keep in mind what I read to you about the other coronations or the other inaugurations. And look at what our king went through. Our king, Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done regarding the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, and he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into the children of God who are scattered abroad, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. So there was a plan to kill Jesus Christ before he ever entered the city. Our king had a death threat on his head before he entered the city, before his inauguration, before his coronation. He had a death threat on his head. Who was behind the death threat? 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Well, what do we know? <clears throat> what do we know about God? <clears throat> Can his plans be thwarted? Absolutely not. God did things on his own timing. Even though the religious leaders wanted to kill our Lord, God had other plans at that time. Let's go to verse 54. Verse 54 of John chapter 11. Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. It wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his time to enter the city, and it wasn't his time to die. You see, Jesus came to die. That was his sole purpose, to die. He didn't come for gold robes and crowns with millions of diamonds. He came to die. But God had plans for Jesus to die at a certain time. At a certain time. It's God's timing and not man's. So what happens later, we know that everyone gathered for the Passover. We see that in verse 55 through 57. So everyone's here gathering for the Passover. What is the Passover? Well, let's flip to Exodus 12. And keep your hand in John there. Exodus 12. And this is why they were going into Jerusalem. This is why our Lord was entering the kingdom. And in Exodus 12... We'll start at verse 3. Now this is after Israel has been imprisoned in Egypt for over 400 years. And the Lord promised to Moses that he would rescue his people. And here's what it says here, verse 3, Exodus 12. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, a lamb. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So they're supposed to take a lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So Israel was to, to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, an unblemished male, a year old. In verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So now they're supposed to take a lamb, take blood from the lamb, and put it over the doorposts. Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God was going to have judgment on the people of Egypt. He sent the plagues. The Pharaoh didn't listen. And so this is the answer. He was going to send the last plague, the death angel. But Israel, if they take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts, if they had faith in God and what he said for them to do, they would be spared. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they weren't going to receive anything of this plague if they put the blood over the doorposts. The key was that there had to be a lamb. 
an unblemished male. And it had to be blood shed. And only if you had faith in God and you obeyed him and put the blood over your doorpost would you be spared. That paints a picture. This is what was leading up to the time that Christ was going to enter Jerusalem. Everyone was going to celebrate this Passover. It was an ordinance for all the people of Israel that they must celebrate this Passover. Let's go back to John. And so here we have Jesus about to enter the city, and there's numerous amounts of people entering the city for this Passover celebration. The Passover that represents the passing over of the death angel over the houses of those who had the blood over the doorposts. And then we have here at verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, now remember, Jesus has fled the Pharisees, and then he came back now. Now he's coming back into Jerusalem. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We all know that famous story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So now he's back to Bethany. This is where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are. And this is six days before the Passover. So this is a week before our Lord's death. Now, it says here, this is the hometown. Uh, This is Bethany where Lazarus was. But we know in the other gospel accounts that it was at Simon the leper's house. And in verse 7... If we go down here, now Mary is going to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. And she's going to wipe his feet with her hair. And there's a key verse here at verse 7. After he washes her, after she washes his feet with her hair and anoints her with oil, we know that Judas Iscariot, uh, he didn't like that. We know that Judas was a traitor. He stole from the, uh, he pilfered from the money box. He was the treasurer and he stole the money. He said it would have been better if she used that money for something else. But here's what our Lord says. He says, therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And that reading um, doesn't really shed light um, as much as Matthew 26, 12. Matthew 26, 12 says she did it to prepare me. For burial. She did it to prepare me for burial. And so Jesus already is talking about his death. Here he is. The crowds are following him. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. Everyone's excited about Jesus Christ. He is thinking about his death. He's not thinking about fanfare and golden scepters and all these things. He's preparing for death. Death. He was on a mission. Her anointing was somewhat of a spiritual symbol to represent uh, um, hope for resurrection. During that time period, sometimes people would be anointed as they had a hope for resurrection. You have to excuse me for this microphone. I hate these things. Uh, Excuse me for that. So a symbol for hope for resurrection. So as she's anointing her Lord Jesus Christ, she's hoping for his resurrection as he's speaking of death. Whether she knew that exactly or not, we don't know. But symbolically, it points to that. Well, what does Jesus say to Judas in verse 8? He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
What is he saying? You can always take care of the poor, Judas. They're going to be here. But I'm going to die. I'm leaving. His focus was on his death. On his death. So Judas's goal was not clearly not to take care of the poor because he was stealing the money. And that leads us to our main text today, which is starting at verse 12. Starting at verse 12. And we have the celebration of the crowd. The celebration of the crowd. And I'm going to read the whole section here, 12 through 16. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So, the celebration of the crowd. We see here that it was the next day. The next day. Uh, scholars argue about which day that was. Some say Sunday. Some say Monday. We're not too concerned with which day it was exactly. But it was the next day. Who was this crowd? Well, if you go back up to verse 55, it says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're wondering, is he going to come to the feast? Because the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. Is he going to come? This is also the same crowd in verse 9 that says, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So this is the same crowd. The same crowd. Some are just wanting to follow Jesus. Some are wanting to follow him because of his amazing attributes and gifts that he had, his, his supernatural things that he had done, like raising Lazarus from the dead. And some just want to see Lazarus. And some surely were true believers. Well, where are they going? They're going into Jerusalem. They just left Bethany, which is over by the Mount of Olives, uh, right across the Kidron Valley. Uh, they just left Bethany. They're going into Jerusalem. What is the significance of Jesus going into Jerusalem? What is the significance of Jesus going into the Jerusalem? Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Now, we've all read this story many times, <laughs> and it's a beautiful story, but there's a significance about Jerusalem. There's a reason he's writing into Jerusalem and not Bethlehem or Galilee. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So here we have God telling Abraham, who he brought from the land of Ur, and into Canaan, Canaan and promised the land. He says, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and do what? <laughs> Sacrifice your son. And what son? Your only son. Your only son. Now, we all know if we've read the Bible, was Isaac Abraham's only son? Absolutely not. He also had Ishmael. So only son doesn't mean only son. It means most important, the, the highlighted one, the, the most important one, the anointed one, the only son. Because God promised to bless Abraham through that son. And if we go to verse 10 of Genesis 22, we see that Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, we know that in John 3.16, it says that for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't mean his only son that exists. It means the most preeminent one. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So we get a picture here of a substitution of death. A picture of substitution for death. Abraham was to sacrifice his only son, and God provided the sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice. This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. This is a picture. And so we see that this took place in the land of Moriah. The land of Moriah is Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem. On the mount, the very mount area that Jesus is walking into in this coronation. So, we have Abraham is to offer his son's sacrifice, or uh, his son Isaac as a sacrifice, but there was a substitution made. So we have a picture of substitutionary atonement. But we also think about David and how he bought the land from Urana, the Jebusite. And let's turn to First Chronicles. First Chronicles. And we'll go to First Chronicles chapter 21. Remember, we're talking about the importance of why Jesus entered Jerusalem. Why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? First Chronicles chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now, David does a really bad sin. He numbers the people. And it says here, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David took a census. It was evil because David wasn't depending on the Lord to conquer his battles. He was depending on his number of troops. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Verse 7. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. 
What did David do? David said to God, verse 8, I have sinned greatly and that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Verse 15, God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now we know in Kings, that that's, or in Samuel, it's Urana, the Jebusite. And the difference for the name there is, uh, they're different languages here. So we have Ornan, the Jebusite. This is the same place as Moriah, Jerusalem. The same place. And what happens next? Then David lifts up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven with his drawn sword and his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces. David said to God, it is, not, is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. So David prays for the people. What's God's response in verse 18? Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And in verse 25, so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And he says in verse 29, for the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering before Israel. So now David sets up Urana the Jebusite's uh, threshing floor as the site of the house of the Lord. This is now the site of the house of the Lord. This is the same place where Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac, and there was a substitutionary atonement. David tells his son Solomon to build the temple on this very site. First Chronicles 22, verse 1, or verse 2. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. Down to verse 5, David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore now I will make preparations for it. So David made uh, ample preparations before his death. And then he charged his son Solomon to build the temple on this very site. And we know in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon actually uh, built this site on Mount Moriah, on Ornan's threshing floor, where the angel of the Lord spoke with him, on this very site. And something very interesting happens in 2 Chronicles after the temple is built. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Something very interesting happens. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. Now this is after Solomon finally builds the temple on Ornan, the Jebusite's threshing floor. The same place where Jesus is entering. 
Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The, the temple is finally done and the glory of the Lord has now filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel seen the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is God, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So now we see the temple's finished and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. Well, this is why Jerusalem is important. Because Jesus isn't just entering a different city. He's entering the city where the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a city from Abraham through David all the way to Solomon. We all know the story of Jesus overturning the money tables in the temple. Well, he did that once before this portion. And he's going to do that soon right after uh, John chapter 12 here. And we can turn back to John chapter 12. We know that in Mark chapter 11, that Jesus drove the people out of the temple. He overturned the tables. And he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. This is right after his triumphal entry. You see how important Jerusalem is? The city. So this was no ordinary place where Jesus was entering. In verse 13, it says that they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why did they use palm branches? Well, palm branches represented peace, victory, praise, worship. It also was a symbolic for. Uh, thing for Judea. They had that on the coins of the Judeans. But mostly it was a celebratory thing. Well, they used the palm branches when they celebrated the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. When Israel left Egypt, they slept in tents. They lived in tents. And so booths and tabernacles is another word for tents. And so we know that this was a celebration that they took part in in Leviticus chapter 23. And I hate to tell you this, but you're going to turn there. (laughs) Leviticus. Chapter 23. We're going to read about these palm branches. Like I said, we all did this when we were kids, but it's good to understand why we had the palm branches. Leviticus 23.40 says, verse 40. Now this was to celebrate the feast. It says, now on the first day you shall take up for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. For seven days. And so... Israel was directed to use these palm branches during these celebrations 
especially the Feast of Booths and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. So in Revelation 7, 9, we know that the tribulation saints use palm branches uh, to praise and worship God in Revelation 7, 9. Let's turn there. We'll see who knows their Bible. <laughs> Revelation 7, 9. You see, there's a lot of prophecy fulfilled here when Jesus entered the city. Well, Revelation 7, 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Palm branches in their hands. And these are the saved people that will be celebrating and worshiping the Lord with palm branches. So now you see when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people took their palm branches, this was a big deal. This is a fulfillment of prophecy for sure. Let's turn back to John 12. So just imagine the scene. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people are laying down palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they looking forward to? And what did Jesus come for? He came for death, but what were they looking towards? What were they expecting when they had these palm branches? And when they were celebrating, what were they expecting? Surely they were not expecting his death. They were not expecting him to do what he eventually did. And they said, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. Save now. And so they were, this was also a, a part of something they did before. So during these festivals of the Feast of Booths, Israel would sing Psalm 115 through 118. And at the end of each psalm, they would respond with a hallelujah or a Hosanna or a save now. And when they said, blessed is he, this is also from Psalm 118, verse 20 through 29. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Now we're going to turn to Psalm 118. This is a big fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 118, 22 through 29. And you're going to see some familiar uh, words here. Verse 22 of Psalm 118. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords 
to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So when they said these very words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were talking about the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. But they didn't realize he was coming to die. They thought he was coming to conquer the Romans. They didn't realize he was coming to die. But he actually was the chief cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, we see that Jesus actually was the chief cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11. It says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So here they were singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he is the chief cornerstone, the very words of Psalm 118. But they still didn't recognize what they were doing. They still didn't recognize that he came to die. Jesus accepted this title because he is the chief cornerstone. Just like he did with Pharaoh. When Pharaoh asked him, was he the king? He says, I am a king. He said, you have said right. But my kingdom is not of this world. He is the chief cornerstone, but he's not what they expected. They wanted salvation from Roman oppression. And when they said they wanted the blessing, they wanted the blessing for the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who was representing the Lord, the one who brings an offering that his offering would be accepted. But little did they know the offering that he was going to give. Little did they know the offering that he was going to give. They wanted him to be a conqueror, just like in the Maccabean revolt through Judas Maccabees. Everyone celebrated when they pushed the Romans back. That's what they wanted. They still wanted a conqueror. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. Now, John doesn't include this portion in his gospel. John just says that Jesus found a colt and got on it. But Matthew 21 kind of fills in the blank here in verse 1 through 7. And it says here, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there. And a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, they shall say, or you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. So we see that Jesus sent his disciples ahead to get a donkey with her colt. It's a mom and a child. Well, some people, some scholars believe that the reason he had the mom and the child because uh, the colt wouldn't come on its own unless the mother led the colt. 
I believe that to be true also. But the key is that uh, Jesus rode on a colt, not even the mom donkey. <laughs> not even the mom donkey. So here we have our king. And remember when I read to you about how uh, the Pope came into his uh, St. Peter's Square and about how Queen Elizabeth had her inauguration and it was nothing like this, not even close. Jesus, his humility was shown in every single step that he took, even what he rode into the city, even what he rode into the city. But why did he choose this? Why did he choose a donkey? Why? Why didn't he just walk? Well, a donkey shows humiliation at his coming death. Let's go back to John chapter 12. Humility at his coming death. What was on Jesus' mind when he got on that donkey? John chapter 12, let's go over to verse 27. It was his death. He says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And over to chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So his purpose was to die. Verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. His purpose was for his death. Chapter 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then down in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. So Jesus' purpose was to come to die. That was his coronation service. He didn't come for any other reason but to die. Although all the other kings of the earth and presidents received so many different things, Jesus came to die. That was his sole purpose. And lastly, let's go to the confusion of the disciples. Back to chapter 12. His disciples were a little confused. So we have three different people in this section here. We have Jesus, we have the crowd, we have the disciples. So in verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they didn't even understand why they were getting the donkey. They didn't really understand the whole thing with the palm branches and the laying of the colts on the ground. They thought he was coming to conquer. They thought he was coming to conquer. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, and we'll see how we know that. In Acts chapter 1, they thought he came to conquer. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, 
is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it at this time? So they're asking, is this the time that you're going to restore us? Are you going to be the mighty king now? Because now he's already raised from the dead. So they're thinking, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to be the great military leader now? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the answer is, you're not going to know when this is going to happen. But you will receive the Holy Spirit. And you will understand the things that happen once the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That was his answer. Because remember in the text it says here, they didn't understand at first. But when he was glorified, then they remembered these things. Well, when was he glorified? Verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. So this is when he was glorified, when he was lifted up from the earth. He came, he died on the cross, and then he was resurrected, and now he's gone to be back with the Father. Well, even Philip uh, remembered this in Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Let's go over to Acts chapter 8. Now this is Philip the evangelist, not Philip the apostle. Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Now we know that Philip saw the Ethiopian eunuch as he was on his way back to Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the scripture. He was reading Isaiah. And so Philip told him that this scripture was about Jesus Christ. And he explained to him everything about Jesus. And so we see here that verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Tell me, of whom does the, proper, the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and, be, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So Philip remembered everything that Jesus said. He understood that the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. He understood that, and he explained it to the Ethiopian eunuch. The same thing happened in Acts chapter 2, right back from where we just left from. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 We see that after the day of Pentecost, all the miraculous things happened, the the speaking in different languages. And Peter gave a sermon because the people thought they were drunk. He gave a very strong sermon. And in this sermon, you can see that Peter totally understood at this point. Remember, they didn't understand at first in John chapter 12. They didn't remember these things at first until God was glorified, until Jesus was glorified. Well, now he's been glorified. And look what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, by the hands of godless men and put him 
to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So now he's talking about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then it says here in verse 32, Then Jesus, uh, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So here we talk about his exaltation and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So we went through the whole death and resurrection and exaltation and the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. They finally understand now. They finally get it. But during the time that Jesus entered the city, they didn't understand. They didn't understand that he was coming to die for their sins. They wanted him to conquer the Romans. My question for us today is that what do we understand? What are we expecting from Jesus Christ? What are we waiting for for his second coming? What are we focused on? Are we focused on him coming to conquer the government? Are we focused on him to come and put America back the way it used to be? What are we focused on for his second coming? And I want to leave you today by going to Isaiah 53. And we should think about this as we approach the resurrection. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scrouging we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. They were not thinking about that when Jesus entered Jerusalem. But we shall remember what he did and prepare for his next coming. But what are we expecting? And I'm sure Pastor Steve will tell you what we're expecting the next time as we celebrate his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word. We're thankful to be able to get together here today in fellowship. We're thankful for the, uh, the singing and the music that we have. What a joy. And we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who intentionally came into Jerusalem to pay the price for our sins, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen.